Hello and welcome to the 22nd CMS Pensions Lawcast. My name is Maria Rodia and I'm joined on this Lawcast today by my colleagues Kirsty MacDonald and Claire Miller. We're going to focus on the equalisation of guaranteed minimum pensions, otherwise known as GMPs, during this Lawcast. First of all, I will be giving you some background to GMP equalisation. Then Claire will be looking at issues trustees will need to consider when deciding on a methodology for implementing GMP equalisation for their pension scheme. Finally, Kirsty will be considering some of the issues that arise when dealing with GMP equalisation for past transfers out of your scheme. Before we explore the issues that GMP equalisation raise for the trustees, I think it would be helpful to spend a few minutes refreshing our memory on the background to all of this. That is, looking at why occupational pension schemes are now having to equalise benefits to account for the effects of GMPs. So I guess the first question is, what are GMPs? Well, before 6th of April 2016, the state pension consisted of two tiers, the basic state pension and an earnings-related element to that pension. Between 1978 and 2002, this earnings-related element was called the State Earnings-Related Pension Scheme, or SERPs. Guaranteed minimum pensions, or GMPs, were put in place from 6th April 1978 to 5th April 1997 as a replacement for the state earning-related pension scheme when an occupational pension scheme contracted out of SERPs. No GMPs have been built up since 6th April 1997 and contracting out ceased altogether on 6th April 2016 when the two elements of the state pension were replaced with a single tier flat rate state pension for those reaching state pension age from that date. Nevertheless, schemes which did contract out of SERPs still retain historic GMPs which are governed by legislation. So why are these GMPs unequal in the first place? Well, GMPs for men were calculated by reference to and payable at the then male state pension age of age 65. For women, GMP age was age 60. But this treatment of GMPs has remained the same over the years, despite the increases in and harmonisation of male and female state pension ages. Because of this, GMPs are therefore by their very nature discriminatory. Like other benefits, if a member ceases to be in contracting out employment before the date their GMP was payable, the GMP would need to be revalued in line with legislative requirements up to the appropriate payment age. In addition, once a GMP comes into payment, whether at age 65 or age 60, it will need to be increased. Schemes must provide inflationary increases up to 3%. However, GMP revaluation and the requirements to provide increases on GMPs in payment are different to the statutory requirements for non-GMP or excess benefits. So when you stack all this together, you can see that the different pension ages, different revaluation rates and different increase rates will create inequality between men and women. How this affects a member will change over time and at different times. It is not the case that men will always be winners and women will always be losers or vice versa, which means that we can't just run one calculation to remove this discrimination. Okay, so we know GMPs are inherently unequal. So why is this a problem? Well, in the 1990 Barber case, the European Court of Justice held that occupational pension schemes are deferred pay and therefore subject to the requirements of EU law that men and women should receive equal pay for equal work. Therefore, since 17th of May 1990, the date of that Barber decision, occupational pension schemes have been required to equalise benefits. 
However, the question of whether, when and how to equalise for the effect of GMPs have remained largely unresolved since. The question is, or the problem is, that the GMP itself can't be changed, as the method of calculation and the relevant GMP ages are prescribed by law. This means that if schemes need to equalise the effect of GMPs, this can't be achieved by just adjusting the GMPs themselves. And this brings us to the Lloyds cases, which brought us direction on the requirements to equalise to account for the effects of GMPs on members' benefits, as well as clarifying the acceptable methods for GMP equalisation. So looking then at the first Lloyds judgment, the Lloyds trade union at the time, now the BTU, announced in 2016 that it would bring employment tribunal proceedings concerning a breach of the requirement to equalise for the effect of GMPs. Given the importance of the issue across the industry, it was later agreed to make an application to the High Court. Among other questions, the High Court was asked first whether there is an obligation to equalise, and if there is that obligation to equalise, whether there is a single correct method to achieve it. If there is a choice of methods, the High Court was asked how trustees should exercise their powers to achieve equalisation. The High Court's decision was handed down in October 2018. The judge concluded that equalisation was required in relation to the unequal effects of GMPs accrued between 17th of May 1990 and 5th of April 1997. The court gave direction on various methods which the trustees could adopt to equalise, which Claire will consider in more detail shortly. There was then a small supplemental decision, known as Lloyd's II, handed down in December 2018. There the judge clarified some points in relation to GMP conversion, one of the methods available for trustees. Then on to Lloyd's III. So the first Lloyd's judgment specifically set aside the issue of historical transfers. This aspect was dealt with by the third Lloyd's case, known as Lloyd's III, which focused on the treatment of members who had previously transferred benefits from the Lloyd schemes to other pension schemes, given that those transfers were not calculated on a basis which equalised for the effect of those GMPs at the time. The judgment was handed down in November 2020, and it confirmed that where a scheme had made a cash equivalent transfer, calculated to give effect to a member's statutory right to a transfer value, the original scheme remains liable to make a correctly calculated top-up transfer payment to the receiving scheme. The transferring trustees could not rely on the statutory discharge in the Pension Schemes Act 1993, nor any discharge forms signed by members at the time. The judge held that the existence of the obligation on the trustees of a transferring scheme did not alter the duty the receiving trustees um, were under to provide equalised benefits. These were concurrent obligations. So Kirsty is going to take a closer look at Lloyd's three and its decision later on. But first, I'm going to hand over to Claire, who is going to consider GMP equalisation methodologies in more detail. Thank you, Maria. The Lloyd's one judgment identified various possible methods to achieve equality, going on to consider which would be appropriate for the trustees to adopt and whether employer agreement would be required. I'm going to start by giving an overview of each of these methodologies and then we'll discuss some of the considerations for trustees when planning their equalisation project and deciding which methodology to adopt. First there is method A, which in broad terms requires each unequal part of the GMP and excess to be equalised separately and on an annual basis. It's sometimes described as a term-by-term -term approach. 
This is the most expensive method and would require employer agreement for trustees to adopt method A. Method B is the first of the dual records approaches. It involves making an annual comparison of benefits and paying the higher of the male and female pension each year. This methodology broadly follows a methodology proposed by the Department of Work and Pensions in its 2012 consultation. Method B would also require employer agreement for trustees to adopt. Similar to method B, method C is another dual records approach, but instead of taking the year by year approach like method B, you keep a running total as you go along. The difference to method B arises in respect of those members where the higher annual pension switches from one sex to the other over time, as under method C, those gains and losses are offset. There are two variants of method C. First, method C1, which does not include any element of interest. The second is method C2, which allows for interest on accumulative gains to be taken into account when comparing accumulative gains and losses, which reduces the cost. Method C can produce crossover cases where a member switches from being advantaged to disadvantaged as a result of GMP inequalities. Now, method C1 would require employer agreement for trustees to adopt. However, method C2 can be adopted by trustees without the need for employer agreement. The court reached this view applying established principles of minimum interference, entitling trustees to select a method which achieves equality at the lowest cost. Finally, there is methodology D. Again, there are two variants to this methodology. Method D is essentially about converting the equalised GMP into a non-GMP benefit through a one-off actuarial equivalence calculation. The comparison could either be done on a single conversion date or potentially for each member at the point of retirement, transfer out or death. Under method D1, you identify whether the actuarial value of the unequalised benefits that would apply to a member of the opposite sex is higher. If this is the case, an additional benefit, probably in the form of an additional pension, equal in actuarial value to the excess is provided to the member. For method D2, you carry out the same actuarial comparison as with D1, but instead of providing an additional pension, you go through the statutory GMP conversion process. A pension which converts GMP structures into an alternative format, for example, in line with non-GMP benefits, and is of equal actuarial value to the larger of the compared values is then put into payment. The judge in Lloyds 1 held that method D1 was not an acceptable method to adopt for the purposes of equalising benefits for the unequal effects of GMPs. This is because under method D1, a pensioner or survivor would receive pension payments based on actuarial assumptions rather than pension payments by reference to the actual circumstances. That's not to say that there couldn't be any times when D1 would be appropriate. For example, for the calculation of transfer values or other one-off payments, but it is not a safe method for the wider scheme exercise. In contrast, D2 is an acceptable method being expressly provided for by statute. However, employer agreement would be required for trustees to adopt this method. Now that we've gone over each of the possible methodologies that the trustee could adopt, let's look at some of the points that will factor into the trustee's decision making on which approach to take and how to plan for the wider project. The first consideration, as we have touched on, is that all methods other than method C2 require employer agreement. Therefore, it is important that trustees involve the scheme employer from the early stages of the project 
so it can gauge its preferred approach. It may be that a joint working group would be a useful forum to have these discussions. Initial work on data availability and potentially understanding the scheme's benefit specifications may also take place at the early stages of the project in parallel to the method selection. This is essentially to iron out any obstacles to, uh, to running the calculations when the project reaches that stage. Looking at selecting a method, there are many issues that might swing the balance between the options and this assessment will vary from scheme to scheme. They are likely to include some consideration on the impact on the member's own benefits, tax considerations, how easy or difficult a method might be to communicate to members. Then from an operational point of view, how easy the method will be to put into practice and of course how much it will cost to implement from the start of the project and then over time. We will not focus on method A here. It is the most expensive method and we're not seeing it being widely considered by trustees and employers of schemes. So turning to the dual records methods. First of all, at an administration level, clearly the schemes administrators and also any insurers of bought in benefits will need to have systems in place to run and maintain dual records going forward. And there may be points of detail specific to a scheme benefits that would weigh in favour of B over C or vice versa. For example, when considering whether or not to limit back payments, depending on what your rules allow, the impact and potential cost savings of that may be influenced by whether you're using method B or C because of the cumulative nature of method C. Trustees will also want to consider the impact on members' own benefits. The most obvious example of this is under method C2, where there may be periods in which a member's pension that is in payment steps down at the point of equalisation, albeit this is accompanied by a back payment for earlier periods when he or she should have been paid more. Net effect can also track into survivor benefit entitlement, and all of these issues will need to be assessed by trustees as part of their method selection. When working through these issues, trustees will be thinking about how they will communicate any decision to the membership. Dual records, particularly using methods C1 and C2, where there is an offset and where this type of reduction can take place, can present challenges. These should not be impossible, however, will need to be factored into project plans. From a reputation and member interest perspective, care needs to be taken to ensure that member communications are accurate and factually correct, while being as clear as possible. Finally, looking at GMP conversion under the method D2 approach. When going through the conversion process, there are options in terms of the amount of simplification of scheme benefits to be carried out as part of the process to convert GMP benefits into standard scheme benefits. Particularly when there are specific complexities in a scheme's benefit structure, this may seem appealing to simplify some aspects of non-GMP benefits. Trustees will need to consider carefully what they want to achieve in the statutory conversion process. There are some tax specific considerations with conversion, which there is uncertainty over in relation to the impact on members' lifetime allowance and annual allowance. HMRC have released guidance on specific issues around GMP equalisation. However, this has not covered conversion. It is expected that it may be some time before there is further guidance or legislation on conversion, which leaves uncertainty around these tax issues and how to deal with them in the meantime. There are also some practical points in complying with the statutory process for conversion. 
For example, if there are historic scheme employers that are no longer participating in the scheme or possibly no longer exist, consideration will need to be given to the requirement to obtain employer consent. Also, where there is poor availability and quality of historic scheme data, this could cause difficulties with the reshaping of benefits. Finally, similarly to the dual records methodologies, there will be some difficulties around member communications. The conversion legislation prescribes consultation and communication requirements, which must be factored into any project. Again, conversion can be a complex process to explain to members, particularly if there's going to be a wider reshaping of certain benefits. The key decision for trustees and the company will be how and when to implement GMP equalisation. The main decision will be to decide whether to, to adopt one of the dual records approaches, being methods B or C, or whether to go through the statutory conversion process to convert GMPs, being methodology D2. However, there are a lot of other considerations that will need to be taken into account to select and implement a method. I will now pass you back to Maria. Thank you, Claire. In addition to choosing the appropriate methodology for equalising GMPs, there are a host of technical issues to consider as part of your equalisation exercise. These include clarification of the tax implications of any GMP equality adjustments or top-ups, as there may be issues in respect of the lifetime allowance and annual allowance. How you deal with so-called nil liability members, for example, members who have died or commuted their benefits. Trustees will also want to look at the scheme rules to understand if there is a power to forfeit historic benefits. And if there is a trustee discretion within that power, then the trustees will need to consider how to exercise it. Then, as Claire mentioned, the quality and availability of relevant member data will also need to be considered, as well as what to do where data is incomplete. It will be difficult for trustees to justify taking irreversible steps in relation to the equalisation of GMPs until the separate process of GMP reconciliation has been completed, due to the risk that the final calculation for a particular member may be incorrect. In addition to the complexities around implementing GMP equalisation for pension benefits, we now know from Lloyd's 3 that the trustees have an obligation to consider and take reasonable steps to equalise past transfers out of pension schemes. And Kirsty is going to look at this now in more detail. Yes, thanks, Maria. So as we've heard, the first two Lloyd's judgments focused on the duty of trustees to equalise for GMPs and how to do that. And the Lloyd's 3 hearing was tabled to consider the separate question of past transfers out. So we already knew, of course, that receiving schemes had to provide equal benefits following colour roll in the 90s. But what Lloyd's 3 tells us now is that where past transfers have been made on a statutory basis, so under the Pension Schemes Act 1993, but unequalised, then trustees won't have received a statutory discharge. And that means they have to consider, with some degree of proactivity, how they could reasonably address that. And it's no longer acceptable, acceptable to just wait for a member to claim. So in an ideal world, that would mean making a top up to the receiving scheme. So what does that mean in practice? Well, it's clear that as part of a scheme's GMP equality project, trustees will need to do something to address historic transfers out involving GMPs too. They'll need to consider for their own scheme what types of steps would be appropriate to satisfy the need to be proactive. And I have to say it's, it's quite difficult to come up with a one size approach to that because what's reasonable will very much depend on the scheme's own circumstances, uh, including, for example, the availability and quality of scheme data, perhaps the relative costs of taking a particular approach. 
And as with the wider GMP equality project, it would be sensible to include the scheme employer in these discussions, particularly where there could be a funding impact. The position is slightly different for non-statutory transfers. So those which wouldn't have been permitted under the legislation, but are allowed under the scheme rules. And perhaps that was to enable transfers to members within a year of normal retirement date um, or for members past that point. And Lloyd's 3 confirmed that where there's been a breach of duty under the rules, these non-statutory transfers are voidable. So they're not invalid without a claim from the former member. And that raises the question of whether trustees should be addressing these cases where former members haven't brought a claim, and if so, how they should do that. And for some schemes, a, a particular challenge for this group, uh, we think, is likely to be establishing from your historic, historic scheme records which past transfers were statutory and which were not. And this is a relevant distinction because while trustees have to take steps for statutory transfers, the legal basis and the approach for the non-statutory category is less clear. So as a starting point, trustees should first consider if they can categorise their historic transfers in the first place. And if they can't, which may well be the case, then trustees will need to work with their advisors to come to a pragmatic solution to deal with these cases. Lloyds 3 also dealt with previous bulk transfers out, confirming that for mirror image transfers, trustees would be discharged from liability, essentially because the preservation legislation would have been complied with. And this means that the transferring scheme doesn't have to pay a top up and it's for the receiving scheme to equalise benefits. And the judgment didn't address other types of bulk transfer, but the analysis provided in the judgment may well help there as well, depending on the terms of the transfer you're looking at. And trustees will need to look at those and take advice to make sure. In addition, trustees will also need to review the bulk transfer agreements for any previous bulk transfers down the chain. And again, it's possible that the wording of a bulk transfer agreement might reapportion where liability sits, and that will really depend on the contractual terms. Trustees will also need to consider the appropriate tax treatment when they make any top-up payments for past transfers, both for the top-up itself and how to square that as an authorised payment, but also the interest element on it, which might more naturally sit within the territory of a scheme administration member payment under the Finance Act. There has been some tax guidance published by HMRC uh, and some industry working groups, and this should also be considered when working through these issues. So I think it's clear from looking at just a few of the issues coming out of Lloyd's 3 that dealing with the GMP equality for past transfers isn't necessarily going to be a straightforward process. Considering how to deal with this group, taking advice where appropriate will obviously need to be built into a scheme's overall project plan. And I think there's also a wider question of how Lloyd's 3 should apply in the context of other rectifications too. So that's probably a question for another day, but clearly trustees will need to consider how to treat non-liability beneficiaries taking into account this judgment when they come to approach other benefit correction exercises as well. And now I'll hand back to Maria. Thanks, Kirsty. And thank you for joining us for the 22nd CMS Pensions Lawcast. We hope that you found it useful. Do look out for the next Pensions Lawcast, which will be published in three weeks' time on the 20th of April. And this will be on the new Pension Schemes Act 2021. Thank you for listening. Take care.